Welcome to Bioethics on Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Jose Zaylot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. This is the latest in our ongoing series of interviews with young Catholic healthcare professionals who are seeking to be true to their faith in their work. Listeners are aware of my conversations with physician assistant Megan Kreft, OBGYN Ashley Womack, and nursing student Elizabeth Nekrevich about the challenges they faced and how they have overcome or are seeking to overcome them. Today, I'm speaking with another faithful Catholic practitioner, pharmacy resident Angela Bauman. Angela earned her Doctor of Pharmacy degree from the University of Kansas School of Pharmacy and is presently a postgraduate year two ambulatory care resident in that same state. She's been involved in various professional organizations within pharmacy and Catholic medicine, and maybe we can talk about some of those in the interview. And in fact, we met at the 2022 Catholic Medical Association Annual Education Conference in Denver. Today, Angela and I will discuss primarily the ethical challenges facing Catholic pharmacists with regard to direct contraception. In doing so, we'll draw from her article, Pharmacist Refusal to Provide Contraceptive Services, published in the spring 2022 edition of the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. Angela Bauman, welcome to Bioethics On Air. Hi, Joe. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, great to have you. So you are a new guest on our podcast. And as I always do with new guests, I ask them to give, uh, give our listeners a little bit of background. So can you tell us a bit about your education, your work experience, leading up to your, I guess, current position as a, uh, as a pharmacist in your pharmacy residency? Yeah, absolutely. So originally, I am from Kansas. I'm from a small town outside of Wichita, I went to Kansas State University for my pre-pharmacy coursework and then to the University of Kansas School of Pharmacy and where I got my doctor of pharmacy degree. And during that time, I worked in retail and hospital pharmacy settings and then was accepted to a PGY-1 residency program in North Carolina. And then I was accepted to a PGY-2 residency program back here in Kansas um, that's focused in outpatient care, ambulatory care. Um, other relevant background is I'm a Catholic Christian. I have taken the NCBC bioethics certification in 2021 um, and was very informative. And yeah, I'm just trying to be involved in both areas in pharmacy and, and in ethics. Yeah. And as I said, we met at the, the CMA conference. So obviously you're, you're interested in, in, uh, in those areas as well, too. I was just wondering, what year did you graduate from or what year did you, um, did you finish your doctoral program? I graduated in May of 2021. May of, so you're newly minted. I am a new practitioner for sure. <laughs> yeah, well, that's good. I love it. So Angela, tell us a bit, what does a pharmacy resident do? So you know, what are your responsibilities and what does a typical day look like for you? This is a lot of things. A lot of people don't know what pharmacy residents do. I, and I'm I, one of them. This is, this is why I'm, I'm asking yeah. the question. Yeah. And residency is not a new thing for pharmacy. Uh, it's just changed a lot. So we have to constantly keep updating ourselves. But in order to be a second year resident, you have to have a first year residency. So I'll briefly talk about what first year looked like for me. Um, I would say it is tough. I think a lot would agree with me. You have a really large variety of responsibilities and you're all trying to meet certain performance standards for your program that are set by um, ASHP, which is the accrediting organization for pharmacy residencies. 
Uh, my rotations last year were usually about a month long and focused primarily on learning clinical skills, becoming a clinical pharmacist. Um, then I was in mainly the inpatient environment. But we are involved with research projects, um, part of committees. We had a lot of teaching responsibilities in my program and just a lot of other different tasks. So every day looked different, but you could uh, bet that you'd be involved in patient care. Yeah. Um, Interesting. I'm just wondering, because with, with physicians, I've, I've heard doctors say, you know, doc, you know, a person goes to medical school, they graduate with, with a medical degree, but they have to do a residency if they want to do anything with it. Is that the same with pharmacy? It's not. Uh, okay. You can graduate with a doctor of pharmacy, get licensed, and go right into other types of practices. You know, mainly the ones you think about are retail and community right. or independent, but there are some others. I think home infusion is one other that you don't necessarily need a residency for, but that may change in a couple of years. Right. So what are you thinking in terms of your future? What, what, what would you like to do when you finish this second year residency? I, I've been passionate about ambulatory care for a long time. The reason being is that I love the time I get to spend with my patients. And so chronic disease state management as well is something I feel is um, really tough sometimes to manage yeah. for patients and providers. So I want to be there as part of the healthcare team. I'm not necessarily restricted to one type of setting or one type of clinic, um, but involved with that, I would love to be involved in teaching, um, either formally or informally, um, mentoring as well. I love all those kind of roles. Yeah. Who and who do you teach? Is this is this other pharmacy uh, students? Typically, I mean, we teach okay. patients every day when we are right. dis yeah. discussing their diseases and things like that. But um, pharmacy students can take rotations. Pharmacy residents can take rotations. Um, we teach the med medical residents. Um, teach nurses, teach providers, teach anyone who needs to be taught really on medications. So primarily the students that would be under my uh, you know, grading and things like that would be pharmacy. But um, we certainly teach a variety of healthcare professionals. Okay. Well, cool. So let's kind of want to get into some of the, the fun stuff that I wanted to ask you. So um, we're going to be, we're talking about issues of conscience uh, in this interview today. And I'd like you to go back to your pharmacy education and maybe even now in your residency too. Just in general, how, if at all, were questions of conscience addressed in, again, in your pharmacy education? And, and I include the residency in that. How, how were these issues addressed? I think conscience was not addressed often. Like that word I hadn't really heard as much until I um, studied it more on my own. I had my own personal convictions or things when I was a technician and when I was an intern in my pre-pharmacy coursework even back then. But pharmacy school was my real first introduction to ethics, healthcare ethics, how do we apply this to our specific roles. Um, our first semester in pharmacy school involves a course which combines law and ethics and they have different ethical frameworks that they introduce us to. So consequentialism, virtue ethics, principalism, things like that. Um, and then focus, focus on unique issues that pharmacists will probably deal with, such as um, needle exchange program and the ethics of that, placebo pills, uh, clinical trials, informed consent, things like that. So I, I appreciated how my um, course instructor had us talk and dialogue um, with different views and kind of respect each other. Um, later on, we also had law to finish out our pharmacy education. I'm sure they had ethical components in there, but I can't remember it being like a strong emphasis. It was just, you know, understanding what you needed to know to pass the MPJE. But we would definitely address ethics in our clinical assessments if we needed to. I'm not saying that anyone tried to gloss past it, but um, definitely not a focus um, for, for my pharmacy school. Now in residency, I by that time I had chosen to take a course. So it was a focus for me, but 
I, we are, we had like a, in my residency program, we had a um, specific program to focus on teaching us about um, tough issues, uh, sensitive issues. I wouldn't say it's as specifically trying to teach us ethics or conscience, um, but it's, that's even not too common. That's something that's growing. That was something unique about the program that I went to. So I would say it's, it's even less, even less in residency, but it depends on your program. It depends on your preceptors. I, I did have a preceptor or a couple preceptors who would share past ethical things that they've dealt with and how they made those decisions. Um, so it was very, very helpful, but I was seeking that out. I was asking right. those questions. Yeah. Well, at least people were open to answer those questions and, and there were, there was some, at least some discussion of ethics in your program, which, we, which you know, we don't hear um, from a lot of people. Well, let, let's ask you um, more specifically about the the issue of hormonal contraception, because we're going to be talking about that uh, in this interview. So uh, just in general, how was or is the issue of hormonal contraception uh, presented in your pharmacy training? Is it a topic where different ethical challenges are recognized? I, I'm going to guess from your previous answer that the answer is maybe no, but um, are these are these challenges recognized or is a pharmacist and, and even a pharmacy student just simply expected to fill prescriptions that they receive? I don't think a pharmacist is simply expected to fill prescriptions they receive. I think okay, we're getting that's good. yeah, we're getting to the point where uh, we realize just how educated pharmacists are and just how important it is to have us in in the medication use process. As far as hormonal contraception, I would say that most people, most pharmacists, don't think it's an issue. Why would it be an issue? It's healthcare. <laughs> Why would anyone right. disagree with it? Right. Uh, I would say it's pretty limited. I have not heard any pharmacists directly speaking out against this um, in my own state, but maybe in other states or other times I have. Um, it's not proposed as being um, problematic from an ethical standpoint. Um, emergency contraception, if we're focusing on that type of hormonal version, uh, it's a bit different. And I think um, we do have a discussion in pharmacy about whether um, these are abortifacient or not. So that was addressed um, in my women's health part of that course. And I haven't looked back at my women health slides to in preparation for this topic, but um, I know that I'm sure that some emergency contraceptives were mentioned, mentioned and discussed in their mechanism, um, but really not not an ethical issue. More of like a, this is a health issue. These are how right. these drugs work, and this is how we're going to use them. Yeah. So, would the the possible abortifacient mechanism would that only be addressed within the context of emergency contraception, or would that be addressed sort of on the the issue of hormonal contraception as a whole? I honestly can't remember uh, like post-fertilization effects of hormonal contraception. I cannot remember someone ever mentioning that to me or bringing it up in an exam or anything like that. So I would say not addressed. Interesting. Huh. Hmm. With that in mind, um, I, I, I want to ask you a question, and it's actually based on sort of some, some personal experience, and, and it has to do with informed decisions, or I, I guess really informed consent is what it comes down to. And I can remember in my, you know, many years ago when I was uh, I was teaching at a, a small college, then became university in Ohio, and I can remember nursing students, and these would be traditional college age, mostly female nursing students. So they were talking, they were, I think they took the healthcare ethics course when they were sophomores. So we're talking 19, 20 years old. And I remember we would talk about um, contraception and, and, you know, mechanism things. And a lot of them were very surprised. You sort of see the mouths open or the, the you know, kind of like sitting up in their chairs. And, and I can remember distinctly one person, and this was outside of class. It was actually at a volleyball game of all places. Uh, a student came over and we were talking 
And she brought up the topic. I didn't bring it up. Um, but, she, but she said, you know, Dr. Z, she's like, you know, my mother put me on hormonal birth control, um, essentially from when she had her first period. Mm-hmm. And my, and I, I remember looking at her kind of thinking like, well, you know, is this an informed decision that, that you're, you know, that you're doing? So I'm, I'm wondering if you can speak uh, about that. I mean, just based on what you said, what the education that you received in your, um, you know, in your pharmacy education and, and from talking to people, medical school and everything else, that these issues are just, I mean, it, as you said, it's just, it's just healthcare. I mean, it's like, this is what we do. Are women today making truly informed decisions about hormonal contraception? So I have to preface, you know, my background. I don't have children. I don't have any uh, minors that I take care of and, and have <laughs> things that I discuss with them. But uh, I did have patients who I, you know, you talk to them about the options that they have. And we talk about informed consent just from a non-contraceptive standpoint. You have right. to know the risks, the benefits, the options, um, and give people the freedom to choose. Um, I think when it comes to contraception, well, any of the options, they're painted in a broader picture of, well, um, what are the risks of getting pregnant? And that has a lot of effects as well on your right. life and your right. body. So it's always right. painted with that risk, quote unquote, even though we wouldn't call that a risk. Um, so I would say that probably not to the extent that I would want it to be in my practice. Like I would want to truly inform the women who are receiving hormonal contraception or the um, the teenage girls who are, are considering taking it or their moms are mentioning it. Um, I think it's starting to become more aware. Parents even are starting to stand up for um, their children who are recommended to take these meds and they have a stroke or a clot or something like that. So they're starting to push for alternatives. So maybe they themselves are seeking information on the internet or from healthcare providers asking questions about what else could I do that's a non-hormonal option, um, simply for those um, cardiovascular and um, stroke type of reasons. But I would say it's it's more of, you know, it's more of patients getting recommended what's the most efficacious. That's always usually going to be a hormonal option aside from like a sterilization procedure. So I would say that it's not truly informed if we're talking about all the options and the risks and the benefits. But um, yeah, and I think also with young young girls is they usually go on a lot of different types to find the one that works for them. Um, and I really wonder if they understand the nuances of all that process and how that's, I've seen many women in the retail setting struggle with finding the right birth control that works for them. Right. Yeah. That's really interesting. All right. So let's delve into or dive into, I should say, the the article that you wrote uh, for the uh, spring 2022 edition of the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. Again, it's the, the title is Pharmacist Refusal to Provide Contraceptive Services. And in that article, you stated the following, and I believe this is on page 91, if anyone, any listeners have the uh, have the journal in front of them. So you say, quote, pharmacists are responsible for meeting a patient's medication-related needs to achieve positive outcomes, placing their patients at the center of their professional practice, and ensuring the promotion of their patients' health and well-being. Based on these duties, it appears it is the responsibility of a pharmacist to prevent the negative outcomes of contraception and abortion for both the patient and the unborn child which would arise from the use of hormonal contraceptives, unquote. Now, in our culture today, in our, in our cultural context, uh, some people might say that those are kind of fairly strong words. I, I, I wouldn't necessarily say they are, but I think they would be. Um, can you comment? What, what are you saying here? 
Yeah. Uh, this was kind of the turning point, I think, of like my paper when I started to see like how would I respond or or where's the real discrepancy. And yeah, I think they are strong words just because they are match trying to match the strong commitment that pharmacists take an oath to live by um, when we become pharmacists. And so I try to connect those those oaths and those points to this statement. But Basically, when pharmacists, our job is um, anything medication related. You know, we are the medication experts. That means we take responsibility for medications, making sure that they are meeting positive outcomes um, within our power. You know, we can't do every single thing, but with our knowledge resources, we want to see good effects from medications. And so that's what we're here on the team to do. And aside from that, the patient is always at the center of our practice. So whatever the patient, um, their needs and their wants are, finding what resources you can do to help them, um, but never compromising their well-being in the process for any lesser motive. That, that to me, is what patient-centered practice means, is that there's no other motives that you are letting undermine the patient's well-being, like money, comfort, power, whatever you can think about it. Um, I think that's the hardest to do because pharmacists, you know, we all have burnout and things like that. Pharmacists are no exception. And so sometimes we want to maintain our own well-being and we kind of put things about the patient in the back burner. Some do. I'm not saying every pharmacist is like that, but getting to the point of contraception, um, the negative contraception and abortion outcomes um, for the patient and their unborn child. This is really what the Catholic faith teaches, even though others might believe in it as well. We believe these are intrinsically evil acts, so there's nothing good that can come out of them. Um, and you know, we it doesn't mean that we don't understand why others don't think this is healthcare or don't think that this is something that they should engage in. We believe someone is free to believe what they want to, but we really hold these as true values for our lives and for the good of others. Um, it's tough, but it's but it's true. So it doesn't help our patients. It doesn't promote positive outcomes, and doesn't help um, human life flourish. So um, if, our, if medications are achieving those outcomes, then we need to have a responsibility for that and we need to do something. Um, so, and when we talk about contraception, that's the direct and intentional use of these hormonal medications, but we know indirect abortions from post-fertilization effects occur. Um, so it really, I, 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 this is where I had the turning point because pharmacists know all they need to know. They have all the responsibilities they have sworn to accept in order to say no when they need to say no, because we know what the mechanism, we are aware of the realities of abortion and contraception. Um, we've made connections to our role. Um, we see our direct and intentional um, involvement in promoting our patients good or not. And so I just think it all connects. Um, and that's why I had that statement. Yeah. So uh, to go a little bit off script here for a second. How does this play out? I mean, do, have you had situations where you have... Um, I guess the word would be would be refused to fill a prescription, and if so, how how do you how do you do that? How, how does that how does that play out in a in a in a in a real clinical or retail pharmacy type situation? Yeah, and then the paper I talk about suggestions for retail pharmacy settings. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just going to talk about my experience from like a clinical standpoint, just because that's where I've trained and spent right. the most time with this conviction. Um, and so what it comes down to is I really have to be respectful of my employer of my program and make sure that if there's a type of patient care that I want to promote, that they know what I'm doing and that we're in alignment. And so it really worked with me on a preceptor basis, understanding how I could navigate those conversations. Um, so I, I would definitely um, advise against certain situations where it was 
not recommended for someone to become pregnant because of being on a triagenic medication, would exacerbate their disease, so on and so forth. Um, and I did not have the direct opportunity so far in my training to say, well, here's what I think is your options. You have hormonal contraception, you have um, abstinence, you have NFP, you have fertility-based awareness methods. I didn't have the opportunity to talk to a patient about that, but I was trying to be ready to because I right. do feel like I want to have that skill. So I think what it looks like um, is definitely prefacing that this is an uncommon thing that you will not see from a lot of other providers, but I truly believe it's what's best for you and I'm ready to help you through it. And from there, it's providing educational materials, following up, um, and making sure that the patient still feels free to seek another provider if they want to. Yeah. And have you had the support of, now again, I know you're in a residency program here. This isn't, I, I mean, but it is an employer type situation. Is Have you had support from uh, whether it be the, the residency manager, whatever the, whoever that person mm -hmm. is, who would be your supervisor uh, in terms of that? How, how have they reacted? Yeah, uh, my um, fortunately, I've encountered many, many supportive pharmacists, um, and and what I mean by that is that they understand where I'm coming from. They understand that this is well thought out. They have to kind of take a step back and understand what are their boundaries and their limits, but they've continued to listen to me and they've continued to try and help my well-being and my education and my clinical skills be advanced. So that's all I can ask for with something as 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 we said countercultural as this, with something as kind of scratch your head like what this is healthcare why would someone say no and especially when we're talking about very serious things like having a baby having a pregnancy um in certain situations so um not everyone has been supportive but i am just very very blessed with all the supportive people i've had um in my leadership well wow. you're actually very lucky then i am i <laughs> <laughs> am angela you also state in the essay that a pharmacist needs to assess whether the a particular hormonal medication is being prescribed for the direct purpose of contraception or not. And I'm just wondering, how exactly is this best done? And again, this could be in a, in a sort of a, an ambulatory situation, which you're in now, or it could be in a retail pharmacy setting. Like, how does this do? Do you, do you like ask the patient, like, why are you taking this medication? I mean, can you, do you just, are you that forward asking that question? It depends on the situation, and pharmacists should always use their sensitivity and read the room. <laughs> but um, it, it really does depend on the setting. I don't think a lot of people know how meds are viewed or come across or orders, depending on the setting. So if I'm in a clinical setting, like I'm in a hospital, I have direct access to the electronic health record. I can see the mm -hmm. patient's chart, no problem. Probably the resident or the attending documented why they're on this hormonal medication, and so then I know. You don't have to ask anybody. But um, in the ambulatory care setting, most likely I also have direct access. Um, I can view their providers or their primary care doctor's note and figure out the indication. And the retail setting is where it gets really, really challenging. Yeah, because I can as imagine. I, yeah. As I talked about in the paper, we're at this place in healthcare where a lot of those EHR patient chart systems are not integrated with our retail pharmacies, which disrupts transitions and all this other kind of thing we can talk about, but um, they don't have that access. And so it's up to their systems translating the diagnosis if the provider or the pharmacist included it. It's up to them having a general idea of what the dose or the um, pattern of care or like, you know, um, in their in their area or the patient characteristics to say it's probably for this indication, but um, really a lot of, in the real world, people are so rushed and busy and, and everything care is so disjointed at times with systems, the diagnosis code isn't on there. So most pharmacists kind of understand from, again, um, what type of prescription it is or practice patterns, um, what it's indicated for. And so, you know, 
this is something I've had a conversation with other pharmacists about. Can a pharmacist validly do their job, verify a prescription without knowing the precise indication? Um, and my thought is yes, it just depends because um, there's things that pharmacists screen for before they um, verify prescriptions. That's the kind of specific pharmaceutical care function or service that pharmacists provide, verify. We use that word a lot. So um, when they're verifying, they look for drug interactions. They look for the right dose. They look for the cost. They look for if it's um, going to worsen any disease states that the patient has. And if the diagnosis code isn't needed to answer all those questions, they may in fact dispense it and verify it. So those things can happen. But where it really, in my opinion, and I think many would probably agree in the counseling uh, session that the pharmacist would do for a new medication or or for any questions. You have to know what the patient's taking it for. <laughs> you could be counseling in a completely inappropriate way if they're taking it for a whole different reason because many drugs have several indications, um, including hormonal contraception. So um, I think that you know it, it depends on the pharmacist, depends on the situation. Um, but that is one of the things we're counseled on is to, or sorry, we're taught on is to ask patients, you know, what are you taking the medication for? Similar to a provider who has to know kind of sensitive or uncomfortable information, it's in order to do their job. It's in order to provide the best care. And so there's this understanding that I'm only asking this information from you in order to do my job. I will keep it private. I will keep it confidential, you know, all the HIPAA rules. But um, it's definitely something that in the counseling session, I can't see someone doing that well or fulfilling their job without knowing what they're taking it for. Interesting. So let just, just to clarify for my own clarity, are you you're saying that in an ambulatory setting where you have access to a patient's electronic health record, you have a much, I don't know about much, but you have an easier time verifying what the medication is indicated for rather than someone who may be in a retail setting? Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah, I would have more information. Um, I don't okay. want to say like easier time. It just depends on the setting. But um, the more information you have, the easier right. it is to understand if there's a problem. Um, I think sometimes retail pharmacists are um, grasping for, okay, do I need to hold this prescription, call the doctor, or talk to the patient before I fill it because I'm really worried about this one thing. I think they have to do that a lot more than Amcare pharmacists or inpatient pharmacists because everything is located in the chart or it's easily right. asked by a nurse or their doctor. Okay. One other thing um, from your article that actually, it, it really caught my eye and it got me thinking which is kind of a scary thing that I, <laughs> when I start thinking. But you say in your essay that verifying dispensing and counseling hormonal medications uh, to be used for the purpose of direct contraception constitutes, at best, immediate material cooperation with the moral evil of contraception. Now, there are some who would who would probably disagree with that. And I know we've not necessarily on this issue, but I know we at the NCBC, we have some great discussions about, you know, is this immediate material cooperation? Is it is it really proximate immediate material cooperation yeah. and, and, and these various and they're, they're wonderful conversations. But I, it, that really kind of caught my eye that um, that you would make the claim that this this uh, constitutes immediate material cooperation. I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit, explain your reasoning for that. Yeah, and this is something I want to keep talking with pharmacists and ethicists about because um, this is based on my study and my um, experience, but I really appreciate the framework that the Catholic Church has for assessing morality in contra in cooperation um, because it's just so difficult to understand without it. So um, if someone, a pharmacist, did not wish to promote or participate in contraception for the reasons that we've talked about, um, we're already in the realm of uh, material versus formal um, so that in the material sense of cooperation, we're either immediate or immediate, according to the 
um, framework, as, um, as I mentioned. So immediate being more closely related to the act, and so you're cooperating in a in a immoral way, or you're too too involved. Um, and then with the immediate nature, you know, I think pharmacists were right there placing the medication in the patient's hand, in in a, in a sense, you know, we're we're providing the essential means for that act of contraception to be carried out. It's essential. It's direct. If it didn't have that medication, it, we would have to choose a different way or a different pharmacist. So if I'm verifying dispensing and counseling on the hormonal medication, um, but I think it's wrong, I don't think it's good for my patient, no one would be able to tell besides my actions. My actions tell that story um, to their representative, my coworkers. You know, it's something that I can't essentially rewrite. Um, so those actions um, lead me to believe that um, these pharmaceutical care functions are immediate material cooperation um, because they are so direct and intentional. Um, I don't go into the um, into this in the paper, but I think that there are because pharmacists can function in so many different ways. I may have all the qualifications to uh, do certain functions, but if I'm in a role where I'm doing a certain type of pharmacy and that has intentionally been shifted to another pharmacist, so for example, if a product came to me that was a um, hormonal medication, but I am not someone who is quali- who is um, allowed or called upon to assess the indication, that goes to another pharmacist. I think that that is also a different um, ethical situation, um, even though I have the ability and I can maybe look up if that's the indication. But is that my ethical and you know moral duty? So it gets really complicated. But um, I think that it, it just depends. And pharmacy is probably going to change a lot of different ways. But yeah, I do think we have some areas that are problematic. I can see where um, you could have some really, really interesting discussions with people about these distinctions of cooperation. And I think it would be really, probably be really helpful for pharmacy students uh, as a whole to be thinking about these things in their, in their training. I'm, I'm wondering if in any of your, well, this is probably outside the, the realm of any teaching that you do, but, or maybe not, but, you know, kind of bringing these, these situations up and, and having students kind of stew on them and think about them and, and, you know, get, as you said, get them thinking about um, what they're doing. Um, but anyway, it's, yeah, I, I don't see, so I, I do think the Catholic faith and the Catholic moral teaching is unique in its understanding of cooperation and where we mm-hmm. fit in as human beings trying to, you know, live in a world amidst evil, but not promote it or participate in it. So, I mean, I've heard from other, you know, pharmacy students and pharmacists, you know, they don't see that cooperation piece in that action that I just described. They don't see how the pharmacist is an essential player and is helping this happen. They just see it as the decision's been made. I'm just a cog, you know, pardon the cog wheel. Um, And I do, you know, with some of my students, depending on the rotation and depending on what happens, because it's something I'm passionate about, it's hard for me to always keep quiet when it comes to my mind. But (laughs) I would always, I would always ask them, I would just say, like, what do you think? And definitely hold back my opinion, because I just want to know what others with either no education or different background and views think about it. So I personally think it's a very important area of care. And as I researched for the paper and looked into the field of nursing, this is something that they have extensive discussions about and experience with. And um, nurses are the most trusted uh, healthcare professionals. I think the last survey, we kind of go back and forth between them and pharmacists, (laughs) who's number one. Um, But I just think that they are doing the right thing, talking about these issues. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I think I've said before. One of the some of the best classes I ever had was was doing healthcare ethics classes with nurses in RN to BSN programs, um, who had been you know nurses had been practicing for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. The conversations mm-hmm. are absolutely fantastic because they can apply. You know, they can, they can apply real world. They can apply these principles to real life situations that they face. So, 
yeah, I, I would encourage you, Angela, is moving forward, have these have as many of these conversations as you can with people. I just got to keep them short, keep them brief. <laughs> <laughs> Stop myself. Yeah, yeah, no, I hear you. I, I'd actually like to, to kind of go back a little bit to the practical and and ask you a question. Going back to the the, the counseling of of patients, so. When a pharmacist does have an opportunity to counsel women about the realities of, of hormonal contraception, we're talking, you know, the effects and mechanisms and, and everything else, as well as alternatives, as you mentioned, I, I'm wondering, realistically, what kind of information can you get across to people? And I, 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 I asked this question because I recently um, had a, now we're, we're uh, recording this podcast on uh, October 6th of 2022. And just a, a few days ago, I had a conversation with a, a physician. I, I take that back, a physician assistant who does telemedicine. And we were talking about kind of this question. And this person was saying that, you know, a telemedicine context is really not the place to have these discussions because it's very, it's really rushed and and there's just a whole, you know, so many things going on. And I'm thinking about myself when I go to the pharmacy to pick up a prescription, it's like, you know, I'm not there for a, a counseling session necessarily. <laughs> I just want to get my prescription and go. And so I'm, I'm just, I'm kind of wondering, can you tell us a little bit about, and again, you're in an ambulatory care setting, so that's, mm-hmm. that's a little bit different, but talk to me a little bit about that. How much can you really realistically get across in these types of conversations? Yeah, and I can certainly talk. I'll focus on the retail setting. You know, I worked there as a technician and intern for, um, I think, roughly four years. And so I would definitely observe the pharmacist um, trying to learn from them. And, you know, we can talk about how people frame pharmacists in the community setting. You know, we're not a drive-through. We are a profession. So the time it takes to do a good job and things like that. But I do want to call people to mind that we are in a um, team-based approach to care. And all of us have a relationship with the patient, every person along the way. Um, but when it comes to realistically kind of having time and like where the time is allotted <laughs> for right. each provider and things like that, I think it is rushed and telemedicine too. I mean, I could maybe see it working for a certain patient, having a, a good conversation about it, um, but it wouldn't be ideal. We're, we're people, we like to talk in person and that's the most meaningful and that's where we can have the best dialogue. Um, but, you know, in, in, in pharmacy laws, like in the law um, in some states I've studied, they um, have different ways that you can offer counseling. Like the first time it has to be in person. Um, you have to be able to decide when the, per- the, pa- the patient doesn't want counseling anymore and they're always willing to be able to refuse. Um, but you can provide su- supplemental guides and things like that. Um, but I think your question is um, like how, how much could a pharmacist actually do with the time that they've, they've been given? And I think it depends. Um, I think it depends on the relationship the patient has with their pharmacist. I think it depends on the approach of the pharmacist. Probably depends on the time of day. Probably depends on how long the line is. <laughs> Probably depends if the pharmacist has a side room that they can take the patient to and have a good, honest conversation. Um, it depends on the p- disposition of the patient and how ready they are to have that kind of conversation. But um, I think there's always a room for an opportunity to do that. I think the more as that pharmacists are realized, again, for their knowledge, for their integration and in patient care, um, for their role in promoting positive outcomes, we'll be able to have more conversations like that. And hopefully, hopefully, as the outpatient retail environment starts to address some of these um, stressors that pharmacists have, but they can't really do their job that well, we will find um, other areas where we can we can have better counseling. Yeah. What, what, if anything, can you do with a patient 
well, somebody like me who just wants to come in and get their prescription and, and, and run away. If someone doesn't want to listen to this, obviously you can't force them to do it, but what, any, any strategies or any, any comments on what you do in those types of situations? Yeah, there's definitely patients who did not, did not plan on coming to the pharmacy to get like even a 10 minute or five minute counseling. So they're kind of, you know, minds elsewhere. You try to um, understand why or help them understand why you're wanting to counsel them. So, you know, this medication is very expensive. I want to make sure you're using it to the best that you can. Even though your insurance is paying for it, I want to make sure that you both are um, putting the best value in that you can. Would you mind if we talked about it? And you always ask in a in a question format, not like we're talking about it over here. You ask if they would, would like to, or you explain, you know, um, this medication can be very complicated. Um, you might forget. I want to write some things down for you and make sure that you can walk me through how you're going to use it. Or you can say, I know you're busy. I know you're stressed, but um, this is really a good, I think it's time well spent if we talk about this over here for a second. And you can always come back for questions if you have it. So you try to help them see um, your point of view. Interesting. I know we you, you, we mentioned this a little bit earlier when we were talking about employers or your, your residency supervisors and things like that. But there are a number of issues that come into play when a pharmacist refuses to to either verify or dispense or counsel on, particularly well, for this case, you know, hormonal medications for direct contraception. How are such refusals, re, how are they viewed by different uh, entities? So for example, like professional organizations, uh, employers, even the law, how, how do those various entities view conscious refusals. Yeah, not very good. Not very good. <laughs> Just going to shortly say that. Um, I, I've even read a specific paper talking about a pharmacist talking about conscience. And um, I think it was a it was a guy he was saying, you know, I don't ever say no to a prescription unless for its very, very, very serious reason for the reasons of like conscience or things like that or morality. Mm-hmm. It's such an area where we can improve on. But um, I, I will say that pharmacists are respected for saying no for, for certain reasons of safety or cost or whatever. You know, we are respected for our no's for good reasons, but for conscience, it's, it's more, uh, it's more, more difficult. And I would say that gets shuttled to the primary doctor who is making the ultimate decision um, when it comes down to who makes the final call and who takes the, um, the blame or the consequences for that. So professional organizations, that's something I'm trying to understand right now. How do they view conscientious refusals, especially with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, like pharmacists who have refused. We've heard about them on the news um, getting sued. And I really recently went to a meeting and uh, it was very upsetting, but the pharmacist said, you know, you can have your conscience, but it's going to cost you. And it just kind of made me think, you know, what do we view this, this decision as and why are we or how are we how are we thinking about why the pharmacist did it? And I try to think of solutions like, okay, if a pharmacist refuses, how could someone on the other side who is really upset with that still see them as fulfilling their job? And part of people who refuse, I think, is taking responsibility for the outcome that you recommended following up all the materials, all the training recommendations, things like that. I don't think that that would be seen as in an, an, as negative of a light. Um, and then we always have to talk about the law. Pharmacists for sure have to know a lot of the pharmacy law. Um, right. It really varies by state. Um, yeah. So you know, some of the states have very broad protections and they said pharmacists can refuse for whatever reason, conscience, you know, in the area of abortion, contraception, whatever. And other laws and states specifically say we will not allow this in our state. And um, for reasons that prescriptions are legal, they're valid, and really trying to 
protect and retain patient access. That's a huge part of like patients should have access to these therapies and your refusal limits access, which is unacceptable. Yeah. In light of that, I'm, uh, I'm thinking of uh, philosopher uh, Julian Sovalescu, who famously or maybe infamously stated, if people are not prepared to offer legally permitted, efficient and beneficial care to a patient because it conflicts with their values, they should not become, now he's talking about they should not become doctors, but I think you could probably take the word doctor and take that out mm-hmm. and plug in, plug in pharmacist. How would you respond to Sovalescu's claim? I think I remember hearing this in the, in the certification course and being, yeah, I, I thought about it then. And I guess the first thing that came to my mind, well, why do we have values in healthcare? What's the point? Why do patients have values? Why do providers have values? Why do I see the values written on the walls that I go into um, different right. institutions to work? Um, <laughs> why do we have them on my badge? You know, why does it matter? Why are we doing this? You know, why are we wasting our time if we don't need them? Um, I think we put them on the walls. We put them on our badge. We remind ourselves of them because we know that they matter. And in the busyness of the day and all the things, the stressors we have, they hold us accountable to the truth that we're called to whatever values they hold. That's the truth. And they draw us to not think of ourselves, but to think of others and why we do what we do. So it's what we aspire to. And it's, it is important. So uh, a lot of patients may look for values because they want values that align with their own or they want to receive a a type of care that really aligns with theirs. So clearly stating them and consistently living them out is extremely difficult, (laughs) but it's what patients want. It's admirable. It's impressive. It's, it's something that, um, they want people to strive for. So, um, you know, I think that when it comes to the other statements that he um, made in his in his quote is like legally permitted. Well, we know things can be legal, but unethical. So we cannot have only legality as the only thing that we're looking at. Um, when it comes to some things that are healthy or like recommended or beneficial, that is very up for debate, in my opinion. Um, it depends on the patient, it depends on the situation, it depends on what other therapies are available. Um, and I think we are at a point where in our profession of pharmacists, we're going to have to discuss um, who gets to agree, who gets to, excuse me, disagree with what they think is best. Who gets to say, even if the guidelines said this, I think this, even if um, this is an indication indication for it, I haven't seen any patients benefit from it. Even though this is something that a lot of people do, I don't do it. And here's why. Those types of, even if it's not a conscience belief, it's just care that they believe is good. We have a hierarchy in the healthcare system, you know, with physicians and and um, other individuals who make decisions. But um, we still have to dis- decide um, in each point who gets to g- disagree and why, because we are all individuals. We all have a relationship with that patient. Um, we will not agree in the end. <laughs> we will not. <laughs> so, um, but I do think that um, we need to treat all patients with the same respect, um, care. So, I really dislike that statement, <laughs> and I think that it involves a lot of nuances that we need to think about. Um, and room for us to disagree um, and still keep our our boundaries. Yeah, I'm really glad to hear you say what you what you said there, particularly about patients' values and and um, patients seeking uh, healthcare professionals or, or uh, that align with their values. I want a pharmacist like you. I want a physician who understands or has the same perspective of, you know, the human person and what health is. And honestly, the same, you know, theological beliefs that I do. That's the person I want caring for me. And if what Sovalescu is saying, you know, if, if, and that's what they're, that's what they're moving for is to, you know, to get rid of all of these people so that healthcare professionals simply become essentially vending machines, giving patients whatever they want. 
I don't want that. I, I want the person who believes like I do, who's going to challenge me. And if you get rid of all of those those healthcare professionals, well, you're depriving me of of the person who I want caring for me. So I really appreciate what you said there. Well done. Thank you. All right. So we've uh, we're gonna we're moving towards concluding this uh, our, our conversation here. I was just wondering, Angela, besides hormonal contraception, which we've been focusing on here, what other ethical challenges, if any, um, did you face in your pharmacy in your pharmacy education or you're facing in your residency? So anything you can think of medications uh, in medicine to have an issue, we would potentially cross. So there's lots. Um, I think that right now at our doorstep is medication-assisted abortion. That is yep. the b- biggest ethical dilemma. Pharmacists um, need to have an honest discussion about um, where they're at with each other as colleagues and where they're at with their patients. So that's the biggest thing, in my opinion. Um, Can and- I ask you a question about that mm-hmm. in terms of the so the, the abortion pill and chemical abortion? We've done mm-hmm. podcasts on that. Are people coming to ambulatory care centers to get those medications, or are they going more to the Planned Parenthoods and those types of organizations? I don't have any data that I've looked at or mm-hmm. trends that I've looked at, but you know, I, I'm in like family medicine clinics or primary care clinics, um, possibly, possibly they are. Um, as from what I understand with the criteria that they have to be dispensed in a certain way and um, probably through family planning clinics like Planned Parenthood or other things. So I would say less likely ambulatory care, but they're also moving a lot to telehealth right. and trying to get yeah. it, you know, um, yeah. in uh, distance or, or online, whatever you would call it. So I would say less likely, um, but then they're over the counter um, emergency contraceptives as well um, yeah. are something common. And I interrupted you. Are there any besides that? Are there any other ethical challenges that you face? Oh, yeah. Um, so definitely the other one that recently came up is transgender care and mm, hormones yep. for gender transition. Oh, yeah. And even if we're not talking medications, though, this is definitely problematic because the use of preferred pronouns and presenting or giving your preferred pronouns as part of your routine visits is absolutely something that is kind of seen as standard. Um, so there's a lot of different elements, not for, you know, not just for the medication side of things. So um, and of course, we're always going to have, I think, end-of-life issues are something that pharmacists deal with when it comes to dosing in certain situations. Um, we, yeah, many others, but those are the ones I want to discuss. Yeah, those are those are the big ones, yeah. Angela, any resources or support groups that you would like um, people to know about, groups for faithful Catholic pharmacists to interact, offer suggestions to one another, or just kind of form community? So there aren't many pharmacy-specific <laughs> resources. <laughs> um, if you find one, let me know. But um, I've, I've searched for a while, and I think either these resources to answer these questions are either made for the public, um, you know, for the everyday patient, for physicians, um, or for ethicists, too, as well, to discuss these issues. So NCBC has always been a great resource, and I do point to you guys a lot because it's not pharmacist-specific, but um, a lot of the documents are well-written. They're easy to... Um, send out and disseminate. And then the certification program gave me um, so much information that I've been able to use. Um, Otherwise, I would say the Catholic Medical Association, you know, where we met was a great resource, Um, way more community focused. And we're trying to kind of form a pharmacist community within CMA, Mm -hmm. um, seeing if we can make kind of a a stance there um, with them, which has been great. Um, But otherwise, I just find individual resources for different topics or different issues. And um, ended up making a website um, in order to have What's a What's the website? Uh, the website's catholicpharmacist.com. Um, completely free, but 
um, I find that my mind kind of goes everywhere at times with things like this. And so this website has even helped me <laughs> gather my resources. Um, and also I update it. So I think it's helpful for me to keep up with, with things that I find that are new. And I'm going to link that in the show notes. What's the, what's the website again? It's Catholic pharmacist with an S.com. And it should be like a blue, uh, blue screen. I think that's the theme I have. <laughs> We'll, we'll, we'll put it up in the show notes. Angela, what uh, final words of wisdom do you have for our listeners today? I don't have many. And that sounds bad, <laughs> but um, because I'm still learning. And uh, I, I want people, whoever are listening, to know that I wrote this paper for myself and for others who are interested to help add to this complex, difficult, messy situation that we're all in. I think it adds something. Um, I hope others try and analyze their role and their um, ask their pharmacists for certain things that they may not have or um, try to understand these differences because we all need to be working on it to figure this out. Um, for people who are pharmacists, um, I think I would just ask them to, you know, those who disagree with me, which are probably many, um, to try and be constructive and add to the discussion um, and really think about, again, our mission, who we are as pharmacists, what rights we have, and why we're here in the first place, and what we're here to do, and what our actions mean. I have no idea how this will play out in the future, because I do think there are good pharmacists who understand this, they respect it, but when it comes to so many competing forces, it's hard for us to find our voice, and it's hard for us to dialogue. In the workplace, it's hard. In professional organizations, it's hard. So I don't know where or how this will play out, but... um. And yeah, for patients, I would ask them to value their pharmacist and um, just try to find a way that you can um, have honest discussions with them if you need to or if you want to. Very good. Angela Bauman, thank you for joining me on Bioethics on Air. Thank you, Joe. For more information on the topics discussed today and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter as well as our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at jzalot at ncbcenter.org. Archived editions of the podcasts are available on our website, please hover on the blogs and podcast button on the main page and then click bioethics on air. Finally, if you enjoy our podcasts, please subscribe to them. And if you would like to support them as well as the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, go to our website again, ncbcenter.org and click on the red donate button. Thank you for listening and may God's peace be with you. <laughs>